HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. I have to give a little apology to my listeners feeling a little under the weather today, so you might catch some spring sniffles in my voice. But we are kicking off a two-part series doing on the program, looking at uh, chefs who have unique kind of partnerships with Farms and no better place to start than Alex Young of Zingerman's Roadhouse. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Aaron. Thank you. So I'm really excited to hear about what's been happening at Corman Farms, but I thought we would start with a little bit of background on you and the Roadhouse. So the Zingerman's Roadhouse, located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, my old stomping ground, and Maybe you can give us just a little bit of background about how you came to the Roadhouse and what kind of food you guys do for folks who haven't had the pleasure of dining there. Well, I had a dream of building a restaurant in this area, since it's where my wife's family is from. And so I had built a business plan for an American brasserie. And then shortly after that, I heard about Paul and Ari, who founded Zingerman's Delicatessen. And I heard of their desires to... Uh, partner with entrepreneurs to expand the Zingerman's business, and we spent about a year getting to know each other. And then I went to work at the deli, and and then we started to build the uh, the roadhouse. Um, how the partnership came together, but um, I is very much a traditionalist in that loves to research food and do things very traditionally. So over the course of the last ten years, I've learned a lot about American foodways and how food moves with migrations and immigrations with people. And so it's been one of the most interesting things in our development, and hence the Roadhouse has grown, um, in really appreciating where people come from and how foods come to be. 
And what kind when people eat at the restaurant, can you give us some maybe of the more star dishes that they can expect to see? Well, one of the main features, we knew we wanted to grind our own hamburger. And so we started working with Nine and Ranch initially, and we did for a number of years. In fact, we ended up being their largest account, single account nationwide on year three. But we now focus on growing all of our own beef. And so I, I grow beef at my farm, and I partner with three other farmers to grow beef um, to our specs. And uh, so certainly beef has become a very prominent part of our restaurant. Um, we built a real traditional wood-fired barbecue pit when we opened, and so barbecue and burgers are certainly, a, and fried chicken are a very large part of what we do, but we kind of juxtaposition that with having raw shucked oysters and a pretty serious fish program, and we combine that with doing themed uh, specialty dinners every month. We do two dinners where we're exploring Sephardic Jewish cuisine of the world, for example. Um, that's our next dinner. Nice. We do that annually. So we do a lot of different things. <laughs> so I know that, you know, there's definitely been a rise in chefs working more with regionally produced foods and developing relationships with farmers. But at, at the Roadhouse, you guys have really kind of taken that to a next the next level. And so I want to get a sense of the Corman farms, the the farm that, you know, you, you work at and run that provides a lot of the produce and and beef and other kind of things for the restaurant. Was that always part of the plan or, or did the farm come after the restaurant? And maybe you can talk a little bit about how, how that relationship has evolved over time. Well, it was not a part of the original plan. I mean, our original plan was to work with local farmers and use a lot of local produce and possibly meat. But we were open less than six months when I was looking for a hobby, and I just decided, I don't know why, I didn't have a plan, but I decided to start gardening. And then when I brought some of that food in that first summer and made a dinner special with it and then fed it to people that I really liked, regular customers, it made me very, very proud. And so with that, I got the inspiration to actually turn my garden into a farm business. And this is... That was 2003. So now we're, we're, what, nine years, almost 10 years into the garden as well. And it's gone from a 75-foot square patch in my backyard to what is now 48 acres of farm, of working farms. Wow. So what are the, so you guys, I'm looking at the, the write-up that can be found on the, the ZingermansRoadhouse.com website. And, and on, the, on the website, it states you guys grow, you know, over 50 varieties of nine different types of vegetables, heirloom tomatoes, potatoes, squash, beans. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you make decisions with regards of what varieties or what vegetables grow? I mean, is it mostly uh, what does well in that region or what you're looking to use on the menu? Um, what are you kind of like working on now that you're excited about? Well, it starts with what are the holes in the, in the local supply chain? So I try to identify items that are not being grown in quantity, so I'm not taking work from other farmers. Um, but then when I select breeds or, or varieties of vegetables, I, I started out, and I still do, go to similar climates. So most of the heirloom tomatoes are northern eastern Europe, so whether it's Hungary or Romania or Germany, so the climate would be um, similar. 
and they certainly have wonderful heritage of farming in those regions. Um, with animals, we just select ones that really for meat, um, old heritage breeds of, of pigs and cows, and, um, and we're just selecting them based on flavor and then how they perform in this climate. Man, how, I don't know how you do it. Like running a f- restaurant and running what sounds like a very ambitious farm program. I mean, how do you how do you split your time and what does the kind of farm team look like? Well, I have a very good team at the restaurant and the farm. Uh, my wife, in fact, manages the animals at the farm. And uh, if you go to Corn Man Farms Facebook, there's all sorts. Right now, we're in kidding season, so we're, we're having all sorts of baby goats and baby sheep being born right now and cows as well. <laughs> Now, there's definitely a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. What about, so well, I know one of the issues that kind of smaller scale producers across the country face are access to um, slaughtering and processing facilities. I mean, has that been a challenge for you guys in the southeast that, Michigan area? That is the biggest challenge. It, it certainly continues to be the biggest challenge. Um, I think my problem is I don't want to operate a slaughterhouse myself because <laughs> otherwise I'd build one. But, um, yeah, it's a challenge. We drive we drive two hours, fifteen minutes each way to deliver our animals to a organic slaughterhouse that I like. Wow. Um, and what so let's let's back up a little bit and talk about, you know, when you started, did you have animals on the property and and was that always part of it or did they come on at later later portions? It came on a couple of years later. Um, my wife grew up in 4-H, and so she wanted our kids to go to 4-H, and that's kind of how it started. And then I started going to the 4-H auctions and started buying animals from the kids and, and trying to support local farmers staying on the farm. And then that kind of evolved into me wanting to um, to grow our own. And so now it's you sound like you, ha- you raise beef, beef cows? Yeah. Do you do dairy cows as well, or...? No, we have a dairy goat herd, though. We have a herd of about, right now, we have about 50 alpine goats that will double next year and probably double the year after that. Yeah, go, goats uh, Goats normally have twins. I was surprised to learn a few years ago. So definitely the, the herds expand quickly in that area. Now, are yeah. you, are, so you're milking the animals. Do you have a milking parlor on the farm there, too? Yeah, we just built one. Yep. We have a full milking parlor that, at this point, can milk um, 12 goats simultaneously. And what what's happening with the milk? Well, it's just, this is our first season of doing our own goats. We spent the last year and a half starting the herd and now building the parlor, but all of the milk will go to our creamery to have goat um, cheese made for, for our restaurant. And what, I mean... As as you're kind of going through the addition of all these, um, you know, the the vegetables, the the livestock, looking at the milking parlor and slaughterhouses and the restaurant, um, have have there been kind of hurdles with regards to the the regulatory environment? And you know, do you need a special license to to be able to sell to the restaurant? Are they set up as separate businesses? And how do you kind of manage the the logistics of that side of the operation? Well, the farm and the restaurant are separate businesses. Um, they're both within Zingerman's. Um, and the regulatory agencies involved, you have to deal with each one of them separately and meet all of the zoning requirements and physical maintenance and all of those things. Yeah, so we have the 
health department on the restaurant side, and then they have the USDA on the farm side. And are folks able to come out and like take a tour of the farm and and hang out, or do you guys do events out there? Or uh, we do. We're doing events um, starting this summer um, on the grounds, which will be mostly catered events. And we do tours. We do some tours, mostly for the staff. But I do my concentration for tours is really in the public um, schools in the area. So we do bring um, ages six, seven, eight, nine, ten out there regularly to tour the farm and learn about. Learn, learn about farm life. So what do the kids like to hear about most? Well, they're usually pretty disgusted by the compost. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they really enjoy the little animals. Um, but usually I'll try to find a really large hog to ride around for a couple of minutes, and that gets them excited. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hog grinding on the side. All right. Well, Alex, we're going to take a short break uh, to hear a quick um, announcement from our sponsor. So hang tight. We'll be back in just a moment. Very good, Aaron. Thank you. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Cane5.com. We are back. You're tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Alex Young of Zingerman's Roadhouse and Corman Farms. So, Alex, one of the challenges I know for folks interested in, in getting into farming is, is land access and, and finding land that's suitable for farming. How did you guys find the space where Corman Farms is located? And I know you have added on over the years. So is the farm a continuous lot or is it kind of separate parcels? It is. When I, when I started the farm and then decided I was, wanted to expand a great deal, I started looking for larger uh, properties. And they were either just way out of my reach financially or were not ideal. And so what ended up happening is I set my sights on contiguous land from our house. So about four years ago, I was able to buy 18 more acres that connected to my house. And then this last summer, we bought 
an additional 30 acres that is contiguous as well. So we've been lucky in that that um, was able to do that. Yeah, and is there, I mean, is there more space in the area? Should you guys want to continue to grow, or would you be looking to, to do something kind of different, or you feel like you're kind of set for the foreseeable future? Um, I think we're kind of set from a business aspect. I really want to, there's some land across the street that I'm going to start leasing, and our plan there is to actually start a separate business farm that grows for the public schools in town. And so that's my next dream for expansion, but we'll see if I can make it happen. And so now the farm is located uh, in Dexter, Michigan, which is just outside of the Ann Arbor area. What does the farming community look like there? Are there a lot of other farms in that area? Well, many years ago, it was only a farm town. Um, Now it's mostly a town of subdivisions and the veteran town to Ann Arbor and Detroit to some extent. So is there a fair amount of, you know, development pressure? I mean, have you considered putting an easement on the land to keep it in farmland or or you're just going to continue, you know, working it and cross that bridge when you get there? I'm going to cross that bridge when we get there because, I mean, we own it, so it will never get developed. Um, and then what about, I know one of those things that's kind of so interesting to me about that type of region in the Midwest is you can kind of be driving past a pasture of cows in one moment and then the next moment there's like, uh, you know, a giant Walmart or subdivision kind of popped up right next to it. Isn't the land surrounding the farmland? What what does the landscape look like? Are there other farms or houses or is it uh, still open or? No, we're completely surrounded by, by residences. There's houses everywhere, subdivisions mostly. Um, so that's one of the things that I always felt was important was to try to preserve farming and bring back some of that farming heritage to the area. Um, we used to have a Future Farmers of America program in the grade schools, and, of course, that's canceled. It was very much a part of my vision is to help uh, convince other people to grow real food instead of commodities, which is the corn-soybean commodity market, which isn't food. And I think that's really intellectually... Um, or subconsciously why it's possible for farmers not to treat the land very well because it's not necessarily food that they're growing in some cases. It's a commodity that's used to make something else. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that connection. You know, because you're, you know, really following both the produce and the livestock from the farm literally to the restaurant table, I mean, how, how do the cooks... You know, how does that kind of change your your approach at, as a chef, as a cook? Do you did you notice kind of a, a difference in the way you approach the ingredients, um, or the way you kind of talked about and shared them with other cooks in the kitchen or diners? Well, it really started when I fed that first meal to those customers because the reward that I felt in having actually made the food was it's the same feeling you get when you make food and people like it makes you feel good, but when you've actually grown that food and then produced it into a meal, it's terribly rewarding. Um, And I think that our customers really appreciate and trust in that we know exactly what's in the food, what varietal, what was in the compost, when it was planted, how it was handled, and then, of course, how it was prepared in the restaurant. And that, just that um, control from the beginning to the end. So, I mean, we're recycling composting all of the scraps out of the restaurant to make the compost for the farm. So last year was the first year that we didn't buy any amendments whatsoever. 
Um, we always bought organic natural amendments, but now we are actually producing all of the food for the plants ourselves. Wow. It's really cool. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, so how does that, like, work operationally in the kitchen? I mean, I know when I was cooking here in the city, we had uh, just started a compost program, I think, towards the, the last couple of months of my time in the kitchen. But there was, like, a big, you know, that was, like, a, a big shift for cooks to have, like, multiple, um, you know, bins to throw things in and to, to understand and make sure that was communicated across the restaurant. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how... You know, working at Zingerman's Roadhouse might be different than working for another restaurant in town because of this tie with the farm and your work with the farm? I think that everyone that works at the Roadhouse is similar in that we want the environment and agriculture to be better, and so they're excited to help compost. I mean, when I started composting um, scraps in the restaurant, we just we literally bought a couple garbage barrels and we started to ask people to put organic materials in it. And then over the years, this last week was our record-breaking compost haul out of the roadhouse. We hauled 5,000 pounds of fresh compost out of the restaurant last week um, by hand. And it's all done by hand, and then it's hand-lifted onto a pickup truck, and then it's driven out to the farm, and it's hand-dumped. And then it's mixed with straw and leaves and stall manure, animal manure. And then six months later, we've got really beautiful homemade organic compost homemade handmade compost i think there's like a new (laughs) 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 you're like from fork to fork um and you guys are doing a little i mean a little work with regards to to preservation out of the farm too i mean there you had a was it's a farmhouse or a barn the greek revival um are you doing a little bit of construction on that or yeah we're in the middle of construction we're building the barn which is a pre-Civil War barn. The house is maybe the fourth oldest house in the entire county. And so it actually predates um, Ann Arbor. It predates Washtenaw County. And so we're restoring the barn to be a dinner barn. So my dream is, and what we're going to be doing um, by the fall, is actually having farm dinners in the barn on the farm. So what do you have recommendation for folks? I mean who are interested in, in engaging in the type of work that you're doing, you know, were there kind of uh, thinkers or writers or other um, chefs that you look to, to kind of figure out how to do this or, or what would you recommend for folks who want to create a, a movement and an operation similar to yours? Well, if you intend to farm yourself, then my preference is to go to the very old school books like Rodale um, and learn about soils because that's really where it all starts and ends is with the, the care and maintenance of the soil. And you'll live and die by, if you, if you mess the soil up, then it's, it's not able to be productive. You have to put more into it than you take out of it. And so what I did when I started was I just went to all the public libraries and bookstores and selected a book to study each year. So I studied Ed Smith the first year, and then I... Um, What's the gentleman's name? Elliot Coleman. And I studied Elliot Coleman for the next couple of years. And then basically everybody has an opinion, and there's a thousand ways to to do any portion of farming. Uh So if you just keep listening to everybody, you'll never settle on your own system. So basically I like to start with very old school and then develop my own systems from that over time. 
Nice. And so what do you, so you mentioned a couple of uh, plans for, for the future. Um, if folks want to kind of get involved or, or be part of the change that you're creating in Southeast Michigan, like what's the best way for, for them to engage with the restaurant or the farm or to kind of learn more? Probably through Facebook. And when we try to keep everything up to date on the farm and the restaurant, and if people are interested in communicating, that's a great way to start. And why do you think more chefs aren't kind of pursuing projects like this? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, a number of years ago, I heard that the next wave in restaurants or chefs was farming. And I had already been doing it for a number of years, and everyone said I was crazy initially. But, um, and that may be true. However, <laughs> it is important. <laughs> it is really important. I think that, that we're, we're recognizing as a generation that agriculture has gone amok. It's really gone awry in the last 60 years in this country. And convenience food and processed food is actually what's killing us. If we don't change it, we will not be around for more than another 100 years tops. So I think that it's just great that, that this generation is recognizing that and, and actually acting because one person can make a difference. We can't always just blame the man. That's great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a, a little bit about your work there. I highly recommend folks, if you find yourself in, in the Southeast Michigan area, definitely stop by the Roadhouse, uh, check in with Alex, check out the farm, like them on Facebook, and um, stay in touch. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Bet on Aaron. Take care. All right. Stay tuned. Um, at- Next month, or I'm sorry, next week, actually, we'll be continuing our, our chat with chefs and farmers. We'll be speaking with Evan Hanscore of Parish Hall. Um, so, so stay tuned in for that. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available as a free download through iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher Smart Radio or visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. I hope you'll click that donate tab and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.
What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Gene Hodesh of Grow NYC's Green Markets. And Gene, we are seeing some signs of spring, finally. Uh, we are, yeah. Super exciting. So what uh, what's happening out the market? What should we be checking out? Sure. Well, the market, if you go to visit, you will find potted daffodils and hyacinths. And, of course, we have Easter coming up on Sunday, and eggs would be catching your eye. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about eggs, which are, of course, this symbol of rebirth, new beginnings, and a new season. Um, And when I look around at market, every now and again, my eyes will land on an open dozen of Aracana eggs, which are those beautiful kind of light blue-colored eggs that come from the Aracana chickens. But if you peek around and, and ask the right vendors, you will also find that there are turkey, duck, pheasant and ostrich eggs at market Um, and at various you know markets around the city our managers have been highlighting eggs so doing cooking demos featuring deviled eggs and teaching customers how to use local ingredients like beets and onion skins to naturally dye easter eggs Ooh, that sounds beautiful and i I know we just wrapped up uh passover definitely made my share of mahogany eggs back in the day with the yeah dyeing eggs with onion skins such a cool project yeah who um who in particular should we be kind of checking out for our egg purchases? Sure. So those special kind of uh, gamey eggs, <laughs> as we, we can call them. Um, I I talked to Quattro's Game Farm this morning, and they're located in Pleasant Valley, New York. They raise chickens, pheasants, ducks, geese, domestic and wild heritage turkeys, and venison. And Carmela Quattro, who's the matriarch of the farm, is 86 years old now. She took it over from her mother, who started the farm when she immigrated to New York from Italy. And all the way up until five years ago, Carmela was out there doing the butchering of all the animals with her son, Sal. Um, She's kind of retired from that responsibility lately. Um, But basically, the cycle of the year on the farm is they butcher the turkeys and geese in the fall and winter, and they always save a couple of animals for breeders. And so this time of year, the exciting thing that happens on the farm is that those birds start to lay eggs to breed. So they'll collect half the batch to hatch into the next year's birds, and half the batch they'll bring down to Union Square on Saturdays, and they'll sell them at the market. So they sell really beautiful. Year-round, they always have really great uh, brown chicken eggs for sale. But just last week, they started to bring in their turkey, duck, and pheasant eggs. And they have about 200 hens that lay and 20 turkeys, that's male and female, 50 ducks, and then a large uh, round of pheasants on the farm. And the pheasants produce a small egg that's just a little bit larger than those speckled quail eggs that you'll see. And they're all different colors. They're brown and blue and white, and they have a really smooth, creamy flavor. And then the duck eggs, um, they're all white in the shell, and they're really smooth and almost transparent. And they have a really rich flavor and this crazy deep yellow, almost orange yolk. They're very fatty and, and really delicious to eat. And then Maria Quattro, who is um, the granddaughter of the matriarch I was mentioning, I talked to her this morning on the phone. She said turkey eggs are really her favorite. They're white and they're speckled with little brown speckles all over the outside, and they taste similar to a chicken egg. So she's very fond of those. Um, in terms of shopping at the market, this is, you know, 
there are a range of proteins you could buy at the market. Eggs are probably the most affordable one. It's one of my favorite things to eat, and it's a very uh, cheap source of protein and, and readily available. Um, and then also, if you compare it to any sort of dozen eggs that you would pick up from a bodega or supermarket, crack one of those eggs next to an egg that you bought from a farmer that's fresh from a farm. Um, and the color, the flavor, everything, it's like two different two different stories entirely. So we really, we really encourage shoppers to, to taste the difference. But I think specifically with the Quattros, the first time I ever talked to Carmela Quattro, I asked her what made her eggs so good, and she said, well... You know, I do go out and sing to my birds every day. And I thought, well, that's probably you're the only person I know who does that. So she sings to her birds. They're very happy, and uh, they lay great eggs. Nice. Um, well, so I think one of the fun things about having some, you know, I want to do like an egg tasting. Maybe we'll get like one of each and, uh, and kind of put them up side by side. But what are some of your favorite kind of egg preparations? Sure. Well, uh, my dad was a breakfast cook, so he he had a diner way back in the day. So he's a really good egg cook. So I just grew up eating scrambled eggs. It's super simple, and it is one of my favorite foods of all time. Um, and then whenever I go to a dinner party or when I go out to an Easter brunch on Sunday, I love to bring deviled eggs, and I mix them up with, you know, mayonnaise, which is actually also something you can make from eggs, um, but I mix it with some relish. And also I really like uh, Ray Bradley's farm has amazing paprika that they make, so I always sprinkle that on top. And then there are all manner of sauces that you can make. So like I said, mayonnaise, bernier sauce, hollandaise, and then also vinaigrette for Caesar salad requires a nice raw egg, and <laughs> that's always delicious. And then, of course, there are all of the, you know, confections that you can bake. So meringues for topping lemon meringue pie or just meringues straight to eat. And then I know a lot of um, chefs who love to make ice cream, they love making ice cream with duck eggs because that yolk is so rich and fatty. It makes a really amazing thick custard for ice cream. Ooh, delicious. Well, I know what part of my, my childhood was uh, spring Easter egg hunts, um, what are you guys doing event-wise at market? Is there anything we should be looking out for? Well, you might want to look for some egg hunts at markets. I'm not promising anything, but you might <laughs> want to go and look. <laughs> not giving away any hints. Um, and then also just a ton of new spring products, everything screaming spring from hot crust buns to tulips to blossoming branches. Um, there are some specials on offer for Easter. Best Farm Kitchen has mint jelly to go with your lamb roast on, on Easter Sunday. And there are also hams. Um, Nordic Breads, the Finnish um, baker, they're making an Easter pudding called Manny, which I talked to the, the baker the other day. He said it's this really thick kind of malty pudding that you eat with sugar and cream on top. It sounds amazing. So that'll be at Union Square on Friday and Saturday this week. And then at our markets all over the city, people will continue to do those uh, cooking demos, Easter egg hunts, and um, you know, just spreading the good word about what to look for at the market as the season starts to turn. Awesome. Great. Well, Jean, thanks so much for taking some time out and giving us a little market update. Uh, if folks want to find out more, definitely check them out on Facebook, Twitter, the new Tumblr page, or visit the website, grownyc.org backslash our markets. You can find out tons of info on cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, and everything that's happening at your neighborhood green market. Definitely stay tuned in and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.